Good to work cars, good days to you I'll tell of how the good old union Is coming here to dwell Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Boy? Hello everyone and welcome to this session at Arise Festival entitled A World to Win where we are joined by an amazing platform of international speakers to look at how we build movements across borders for people, planet, peace and a better world. Um, as I said, this is part of Arise, an online festival of left ideas and kindly today's event is supported by the Peace and Justice Project. I'm Matt Wilgress, National Organiser for Arise. As many of you will know, Arise is a celebration of our socialist values of peace, internationalism, solidarity and unity. And we're delighted to have so many of you with this discussion as part of that today. As our speakers will go on to discuss in depth, we are going through a number of major and simultaneous crises, both here and internationally. From the climate catastrophe, which puts the very future of humanity at risk, to the wars and conflicts that scar so much of the world, to the deep refugee crisis, and of course, in many countries, a cost of living emergency that reflects how broken the capitalist economic system we live under is. In response, we need to put forward ways to transform our world and put people and planet first. And as part of this, we need to build movements for justice around the world and across borders. Part of this, of course, must be progressive international cooperation on the left. And that's why we're so delighted to have this global platform today and be building links with and between socialist and other progressive movements in Latin America, Africa, Europe, the US and beyond. And part of this must be standing with all those social movements globally that are looking to change the future of the world for the better and build a more peaceful future. So it's great to be hearing from some of these today as well. As the speaker in our last session said, the ruling class and ruling elites organised across borders and we need to too. As the event goes on, Please post your questions in the Q&A section on Zoom and we will look to put some to our panel towards the end of the event, the event. Also, please make sure to let us know where you're tuning in from. We love to hear about people where you're tuning in from in Britain and around the world. And also post comments as well and I'm sure to give some shout outs and read out as many comments as I can. Please also keep an eye out for links, including to buy a ticket for the whole festival and to donate to Arise in the chat. Without any further ado now, I'm delighted to welcome our first speaker. Um, she's speaking on behalf of Progressive International, Aline Piva, and is from Brazil, where obviously there was a very heroic defeat of the far right recently, and is somewhere where a lot of interesting developments are going on. Um, Aline, it's an absolute pleasure to have you joining us again today, and thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you so much, Matt, for the invitation. Um, I would like also to thank everyone that is here, the panelists and everyone that worked uh, to organize this wonderful event. It's uh, really an honor to be here today. Uh, and I wanted to talk about two things mainly. First of all, I wanted to give a bit of update on how things are going here in Brazil right now. I know that many of you have worked really hard to denounced the ongoing coup against Dilma Rousseff several years ago and worked throughout all these years to denounce all the unraveling and the attacks that were made by 
uh, Jair Bolsonaro here in Brazil against the Brazilian people, the indigenous communities, um, all the uh, people who were struggling to keep with keep everything that we had conquered in previous years. So I wanted to give a little bit of update on that and then move to uh, what the Progressive International is doing, not only here in Brazil, but elsewhere. Um, Lula's election, then and I had the honor to have Jeremy Corbyn here with us in the second round of the elections, in the first round, sorry, uh, second, I think it was second round of the elections, following closely how were uh, the climate and the streets, the hope that were uh, taking place here in Brazil at that time. And this was wonderful. This was really important to have. This was a very important moment to see how international solidarity and the international support played an important role because we saw and we are now going through all the legal stages to investigate. We know that they were real and clear attempts uh, of a coup, another coup here in Brazil during the elections uh, last year. Uh, we saw the use of uh, state money, we saw the use of the, the institutions here to try to prevent the election of the favorite, again, uh, Lula da Silva. Nevertheless, Lula won and is now uh, implementing that series of changes uh, in the country that is going to be extremely important for uh the people as a whole, but especially for popular movements, for social movements, to regain the space that we lost in the previous years. Um, so what we are seeing now is a broad program to implement agrarian reform in the country. The president has stated that uh, moving forward with this is one of his priorities right now. Uh, we have seen the uh, reconnection or the restart of programs that are really important to fight back housing equality and the lack of housing available in urban areas. Uh, We have seen the creation of the Minister of the Indigenous People, racial equality. Uh, We again have a Minister of Women uh, and social equality. So little by little, what we are seeing, what we are witnessing here in Brazil is a kind of the rebuilding of a state that is concerned with its people, with the building of a, a space where people, where popular movements can thrive. But that's not enough. We know that this is not enough because we are fighting back something that is is an international movement. Uh, We know that there is this uh, reactionary international, this far-right international that is extremely organized, that is very well connected. And what we need to fight this back is to build our own movement. And that's where the work of Progressive International uh, comes in and is so important. 
what we are building right now is a platform, is a space where people uh, from different walks of life, from different struggles, from different movements can come together and fight back what is needed and continue building on um, this platform that is related to the people, to the people's need to uh, building popular power so we can have real strong democracies where we can keep uh, winning, where we can keep fighting back all those forces that doesn't want us there. We have two important initiatives. One is going to take place here in Brazil, uh, where we are bringing together several um, activists, um, politicians from different parts of the country so we can do something similar as we are doing here today, exchanging ideas, um, building on our, on our collective power. And the second is the founding, the foundation of what we are calling exactly the Reactionary International, that is sort of a think tank where we are going to unravel all these different uh, ways uh, the far right is using to keep, you know, keeping, keep, keep on doing what they were, they have been doing for the past almost decade now. So I think this is really important. I am almost finishing with my time. So I wanted to thank you all again. I'll be here if you have any questions, if you wanted to know anything more about what is taking place, this beautiful, uh, you know, time, hopeful time that we are living here in Brazil and also for the work of Progressive International. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for that contribution and good to have some good news at the start of the meeting. Um, when we were talking just before the meeting, we were saying, getting ourselves quite depressed talking about different crises in the world um, but there also are solutions to these crises and part of that is movement building and part of that is progressive policy solutions so it's great to have you with us. Um, before we move to our next speaker we have a short announcement from Logan who many of you will know as one of the Arise volunteers and also an activist with the NEU. Over to you Logan. Hi all, I'll try and keep this brief because we do have some fantastic speakers from across world and the reason I'm trying to chat to you today is to ask for your help we in our eyes need help to try and keep growing to try and keep bettering and holding events like these where we have I think it's fair to say quite a global platform speakers from many different continents but we can only do that if we have some help from you guys and a key way to do that is the donate link in the chat below which I'm sure will be posted you could also, if you do, maybe fancy a bit more of a regular contribution to the work of Arise and to keep us going into our more physical stage of meetings as we come towards the end of the year, and you can become a friend of Arise for £5 a month. We also, obviously we're aware times are tough, not everybody can, is it, can or is in a position to, to donate to us. You can help us grow by supporting our meeting on Wednesday, the 28th of June, which that promises to be a really fantastic uh, meeting of people, including my own union's uh, senior vice president, Emma Rose, who I can safely say is a fantastic speaker. 
and can highly recommend listening to her and Beth Winter alongside Comrades in Socialist Future. So please, if you can, donate. If you feel you can, become a friend of Arise and I hope to see you on Wednesday. It's also my birthday, so hopefully see you there. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you, Logan, and uh, happy birthday from all of us, I'm sure. Um, if you can give some support to Arise, please do. Um, it's great to see, I can see we've now got over 300 people joined us live and it's growing fast. Um, if you are on Twitter or Facebook watching the stream, please um, share away. It does make a big difference to our numbers. Um, our next speaker is the president of the party of the European left, um, based in Austria, and it's a privilege to introduce Walter Bayer. Welcome, Walter. Hi. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's a good feeling to take part in this uh, adventure of creating new ties between the progressives uh, all over the world. One, uh, a couple of words about Europe. Uh, Europe and the European left are in a very peculiar period of transition. You have on the one side huge social movements, as in as we saw in France, in Greece, in Spain, in Portugal, even in the Czech uh, Republic and uh, elsewhere. Uh, you could say class issues and gender issues are uh, back on the European uh, agenda. Uh, this is also uh, demonstrated uh, by the polls which are available. Uh, Eurobarometer, uh, for example, says that 93% uh, of the people are worried about the rising cost of living, 82% about poverty, uh, 81 each about climate change and the spread of the uh, Ukraine war. On the other hand, and that is also displayed in the data, uh, is that half of the citizens and especially young people uh, think simply that their voices and their votes uh, do not count. And this contradiction actually uh, creates the atmosphere in which the radical right, the neo-fascist parties uh, rise and grow. We see that all also across Europe, Italy, Portugal, Spain, France, Germany, Austria, even in Scandinavia and Finland, and also in the, uh, the recently held elections last weekend, actually, uh, yesterday, uh, the uh, elections uh, in Greece. So the biggest challenge for the left in Europe is uh, to develop an efficient counter strategy uh, to the rise of the uh, far right. And uh, in order to do so, I think uh, we uh, must acknowledge there is a two-pronged attack on democracy and progressives uh, in Europe. On the one side, uh, this is the frustration of the people about the neoliberal counter-reforms, uh, about uh, that their voices are, are not heard, partially expressed through uh, abstention at elections. On the other hand, you have an growing authoritarian inclination uh, of the ruling uh, elites, uh, also demonstrated by the adoption of the agenda of the far right by conservative uh, parties in different countries. That means uh, what we actually need 
is a radical socialist, ecological and feminist program uh, for a radical left, which does not only address the uh, rise of the far right, but also listen to the people and expresses their wishes, their griefs, their demands, and take them seriously and transform them uh, into social movement and into uh, a change of the political uh, power relations. Indeed, if you uh, look at the last years, there were uh, no minor successes achieved in social struggles, minimum wage directive, platform workers uh, di directive. Uh, we support all the campaigns of the ETUC for a social progress protocol and for a strengthening of the social pillar uh, of the European Union. But what we also have uh, to admit is that under current conditions, progress can only assert itself exceptionally and against a great resistance. Why it is so? Because there still is an hegemony of neoliberalism within uh, the ruling elites and also uh, in the middle, middle, middle stratas uh, of the societies. And the same applies uh, for uh, the climate crisis almost certain that uh, we will miss the uh, 1.5 degree um, goal. Why is it so? Because in fact, green capitalism uh, so often uh, evoked is an oxymoron as the accumulation driven logic of capitalism cannot by its character be sensitive to any limits to the exploitation of people and uh, nature. And this is also about class and gender, as it is an established fact that 10% of the income earners in uh, Europe are accountable for 50% of the CO2 uh, emissions. So what we have to create is a strong alliance between the social movements, the trade unions on the one side, the political left on the other side, and the ecological and feminist movements in order uh, to counter uh, the crisis which we see and also the political offensive uh, by the far right. Let me say only uh, one word about the war in the Ukraine, which makes all our discourses about progressive reforms hypothetical. Just what happened uh, last Saturday, a warlord, a criminal, a gangster actually, was on the verge of gaining possession of nuclear warheads. And that's the situation. And we must not allow the European people to accommodate uh, to war and to militarism uh, as a normality. War has triggered an immense ecological uh, disaster and this means, in the first place, this must stop. And there exists no other way as political and democratic means uh, as they were put forward uh, by Lula, the Vatican, the People's Republic of China, and the EU must act uh, accordingly. And finally, uh, let me say uh, about uh, the left uh, in, in Europe. Uh, the left uh, in Europe could uh, establish itself as a political factor uh, in the 90s and in the year uh, 2000. But what is also true is that it did not manage to overcome its fragmentation. And this fragmentation is actually one of the reasons uh, of the uh, weaknesses. 
We see this fragmented left that can be explained historically, wounds of the past, real strategic, strategic differences, differences in the uh, concrete situations of the different countries. But in the face of the rise of the far right and the crisis which we are in, we cannot remain in our echo chambers. We are aware of our, diversity, of, of our diversities. We respect it, but we also see that there is much more uh, that unites us than that uh, divides us. That's why uh, the part of the European left has uh, adopted in uh, its uh, General Assembly uh, celebrated uh, last weekend a call to all uh, left forces and socialist and feminist forces in Europe, a call for unity in order to give strength to those forces uh, in Europe uh, to resist the onslaught uh, of the far right for a peaceful Europe, for a Europe of common security, for a feminist and a social just and a democratic Europe. I think I made it in eight minutes. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Elsie. Yes, uh, exceptional timekeeping from our Austrian comrade there. Uh, thank you so much for being with us and we look forward to hearing more from you in the discussion. Um, I've just been sent a list of places where people are tuning in from um, here in Britain. It's a bit long, but I will give a few shout outs. Welcome to people from Sutton, Leeds, London, Manchester, Bradford, Wales, Stroud, Stockport, Wrexham, Edinburgh, Belfast, Woking, Paisley, Winchester, Southampton, Liverpool, and many more places. I can see our numbers are still growing, so please do um, share those streams and hit the retweet button as well. And also, um, someone is asking in the Q&A about Wednesday's closing rally um, with the striking workers, supporting the striking workers joint with um, Socialist Future and Young Labour. Um, that starts at 6.30 and a link will be posted in the chat that you can register at. Our next speaker is Jarad Mustakbal, um, who is joining us from Morocco, where the annual meeting of the IMF and World Bank is taking place soon and is also from the Committee for the Abolition of Illegitimate Debt, um, which is something I'd very much recommend you check out and also a member of ATTAC. Um, over to you, Jared, and thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Matt. I'm so glad to be here in this panel. Um, uh, I think it's this kind of meeting is very important where um, activists from Global South and meet with the cameras from the north to learn from each other, to share our people's struggle, to support each other, but also to dream together, because I think this is also, <laughs> we need like dreams and utopia for the moment with, as we said before starting that uh, it's it's really difficult to, to find. So, so it's really important. And also as, as Thomas Sankara said, that we don't, don't have to leave to our enemy, the monopoly of creativity and imagination. So it's really important. And thank you for having this, this, this panel. So, um, so my talk will be about the debt and neo-colonialism. I, I propose to start with colonialism and debt because I think many of our suffering today and the issues that we are living today, actually they have their roots in colonialism and started actually by the colonial area. So this, like, for me, it's really important to start with this, this era. So um, debt was in many of our countries, the main reason and the main pretext to, 
to colonize our countries. So if you take countries like Tunisia or Egypt and, and Morocco, of course, and I will talk about my, our, our case in, in Morocco, that that was really the direct protest to colonize our, our country. For example, and I, I think it's the case for many countries in the global south. So for the case of Morocco, the official like date for the, the colonization, which is called the Protectora, the French colonization in, in Morocco started in, in 1912, but actually eight years earlier, the bankers, the French bank, BNP Paribas, was already controlling the, the, the economy, controlling the fence. Like the first uh, state uh, department actually was the, the debt department, which is like to, to, to reimburse, I mean, to, to control and to get their, their, their money back. And also in, in, in 1907, they created the, like the central bank, La Banque d'État du Maroc, the central bank, the first central bank that was like a private one and was all again leaded by this French banks, uh, PNB Paribas. So just to, to show how like this, um, the debt was really uh, at the origin of the colonization and the whole economy actually that was imposed that the capitalist economy, uh, extractive one that was imposed to our people actually uh, debt was used as also as a moral pretest to colonize and intervene military and conquest our country military. And it, it's like, they were like just telling like, look guys, we gave you money. You are not able to give, to pay us back. So then we have the right to conquest your countries and to get back our money. And of course, this money was not to help us at, at, at all. This is what I'm, I've tried to, to show, okay. Um, and if we talk about the, the debt after the colonization, uh, actually the, 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 we, the, the debt as, as the, the, like the amount of money was also a legacy from, from the, colonize, uh, the, the colonization. Like when we got the so-called independence, we inherited from the French colonizers uh, a debt that was decided by the French colonizers. And it's up for the case of Morocco, it's up to 1 billion dirhams that we had to pay back while it, it was never, it never served like our people. It was decided by the colonizers for the private French private companies. And we, we had, we continued paying this debt up to 1994. So our, our, official independence was in 1956, but we, we continued paying the debt up to 1994. It means like 40 years after the independence, our people continue to pay the, the, the debt that were, was decided and contracted by the French colonizers. So for us, it's completely odious and eligible date that French should give us back. But for me, this debt is not the worst legacy. The worst legacy that we get, we got from the from the colonizers actually, is a completely corrupted elite with a very colonized mindset who ruled the country. This elite, who is still ruling the country, was raised 
by, by the colonizers and interiorize their logic, including their disregard to our own people and to our culture. So this elite, they, they uh, put hands in, like they collaborate with the colonizers, with the French and Spanish, and now with even with US, and they conduct like a process of accumulation of the, the, the wealth by this disposition of resources from our people. I'm talking about lands, water, minerals, and so on. So, like in in simpler words, what 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 was done is actually they just the the local elite raised by the colonizers just continue the robbery that already started with the colonizers. Is exactly what 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 what's happened. So, if the debt was uh, a, a main tool to colonize our country, so main tool for neo colonial for colonialism. I think that that was also, or has been, because it's still the case, has been a main tool and the main pretext for neocolonialism, which is like, in short, is neoliberalism. So using this tool of debt, institutions like World Bank and IMF interfere in our, our uh, economies and impose actually their neoliberal economic policies that was catastrophic for our people and for our uh, uh, for our economy and even for our ecosystems so neoliberal economies uh, policies so privatization of uh, profitable owned uh, state owned companies liberalization of the uh, strategic sectors so energy telecommunication water services uh, export oriented agriculture and and this the, the 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 balance sheet of those policies was really a, 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 a catastrophic for our people and our ecosystems and uh, result in a deep undermining of our sovereignty so food sovereignty energy sovereignty let, let me just give you two examples in terms of food sovereignty so when in 1956, we were exporting grains, cereals toward Europe mainly and toward French, like it was 20, 21% of our uh, of export were the, the grains, the cereals. Today, like last year, 2022, we imported 45 of our grains from Europe, we are the first importer of grains in, from from Europe. Can you imagine that? And 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 everyone who visited Morocco can know how cereal is important and how bread is the base like food for our our people. So, fifty years or more, like sixty years of applying those neoliberal policies, ended by a complete dependence and uh, undermining of our. Our sovereignty in terms of for this for the energy today the energy sector is completely under the control of the private sector up to 74 percent of our energy are produced by the the private sector uh, through what we call like the ppp the three ppp the, the public private partnership which is like more uh, a socialization of losses and privatization of, of profit this is what how the how we call them so, so yeah, so this, and maybe just one thing, like 
and and the privatization actually was um, embraced by the local elite that I talk about, not only because of their mind colonized mindset and this idea, this illusion that we should like you know mimitate the Western um, modernity, so-called modernity, and and catch up which is a complete illusion and it's ecologically impossible and it's a failure. And we can see it like our cameras talk about Europe. We can see what's happening in UK, in France, how it's a failure. So why we are trying to mimitate something that is not working? Let's strike something else and maybe we can find solution for Europeans, for our cameras in Europe. Maybe this is the, the, our time to find, to propose solution. So this elite, the local elite embraced that, not only for that, but because they were benefiting directly from those policies. So if you see like the privatization, the, the, the French companies benefited from that, but also the local, local uh, elite, uh, mainly the royal family and the wealthy families in Morocco benefit from, the, from those privatiz privatizations. For, for energy sector, for example, the, 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 and, and including the renewable energy. So if you take like the renewable energy, the wind energy is completely under the control of a company owned by the Royal with a joint venture with Engie, the French, the French company. The second part is that this, the like implementation of those policies were not, was not possible without an authoritarian regime. Thanks to this authoritarian regime, those policies was imposed and implemented without any discussion. Or what I talked about, like all those, the privatization, the export-oriented agriculture were never discussed in any form of democratic process. They were imposed. And for multinational, it's kind of a heaven for them. Like, uh, so there's no regulation, like, like no control, and no, they are not respecting any form of environmental or social uh, regulation or, or rights. And in the same way, those policies and, and uh, economic policies reinforce also the authoritarian regime. And today, there is an escalation of uh, repression in our country and the whole region, actually. Like in Egypt, we have much more political prisoners today than in the, in the Mubarak era, which is insane. In my country, today we have up to 170 uh, political prisoners in the prisons. And, the, um, and like, including, including um, a leader of the movement, uprising movement, for example, the movement of the uh, reef, uh, the Hirak in the north of, of Morocco, they were charged up to 20 years because, and for a completely peacefully protest. They were asking for road, university, uh, and hospital. So can you imagine that? People are charged 20 years prisons just because they were asking for university, road, and hospital, and they're still in, in jail. We have also people, activists in social media, like Saida Lalami, uh, who uh, she is now in the prison, charged with five years. years uh, uh, then we have also journalists, and including my, my camera, uh, 
Omar, close, close friend, Omar Radi, who is investigative journalist, and he was charged up to six years just because he was doing his work and tried to show how people uh, taking benefit of their uh, position close to the power, which is like the palace, to uh, make wealth, to be wealthy. And he is at prison because of that. I think that I'm, 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 maybe I'm extending the time, so I will just stop, stop here, and maybe we can come back uh, during the question. And thank you. Thank you, Jared. That was really fascinating. And I think this World Bank IMF summit taking place in Morocco is something that we need to have much more on our agenda here on the left in Britain, but also internationally. And also um, the issue of debt and colonialism is something that if people are interested in, there's another video as well on the Arise YouTube. You can see our session on the new colonialism, which also goes into some of these important issues he's raising. And hopefully we can return to in the discussion. Um, our next speaker is someone who people may have seen speak at other Arise and um, Labour Friends of Progressive Latin America events as well. Um, she's a Peruvian democracy campaigner and also from the uh, Centre for Economic and Policy Research, CPR, which is something I'd really recommend you follow regularly for news and updates. a really brilliant organisation that we've worked with for a long time. Um, so over to you, Francesca Emanuele. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me, and I'm deeply honored to be here with these amazing panelists and colleagues who tirelessly fight from their own trenches for a better world. So yesterday, a Peruvian leftist leader, a former guerrilla fighter, a former congressman, passed away at the age of 88. His name was Hugo Blanco, and some of you may have heard of him. Uh, his struggle against exploitation has been an example for numerous social organizations worldwide. His work in the 60s, organizing campesino and indigenous unions to seize land from feudal-style feudal hacienda owners in the Peruvian Andes is especially noteworthy. And I didn't want to start this presentation without mentioning a small part of his legacy because Hugo Blanco is a genuine inspiration. So, you know, when a revolutionary dies, they never truly die. It is with this fighting spirit akin to Blanco's that the working classes of my country, Peru, currently find themselves. Since the end of Fujimori's neoliberal dictator, dictatorship in the early 2000s, an inhumane inequality has deepened in Peru, solidified in a de facto apartheid uh, against indigenous and rural communities. Mafias have captured the institutions uh, of my country, and consequently, we have suffered devastating political instability in just the last five years, we have had six different presidents. And today, Peruvians live under a new form of dictatorship, falsely legitimized by unjust laws and a constitution still in place, still in force, approved during uh, Fujimori's dictatorship. Current polls indicate a record rejection of the far-right government-led by Dina Boluarte, which was installed last December following the impeachment of democratic, democratically elected President Pedro Castillo. Now, uh, all, uh, around eight 
out of every 10 Peruvians reject Boluarte's regime. And by, uh, but despite this widespread rejection, it is those who have the least, the working class and indigenous people who are now risking themselves, who have been protesting in the streets for six months, demanding new elections and true democracy. And earlier this year, in response to massive protests, the Boluarte regime reacted with lethal repression, committing massacres. State forces killed 49 indigenous people and rural residents in what human rights organizations have labeled as extrajudicial executions with a racist bias. Despite the overwhelming evidence of these killings, Boluarte's government remains in power and no official, listen to me, no official, and there is a lot of evidence, has been prosecuted by a justice system that has also been captured by right-wing forces con controlling uh, the Peruvian Congress as well. So this July, the unions and indigenous organizations in my country have called for uninterrupted days of protest. Standing here on this platform, I call upon each and every one of you. Our shared quest for social justice knows no borders. It is a call that unites us all. I invite you to join hands with my people in their courageous struggles. Let your support resonate far and wide. Utilize social media to denounce the oppressive Boluarte regime. Issue statements, publish articles, and organize delegations to Peru. Remember, in unity, we can create ripples of change that echo across nations. And, and additionally, I don't want to finish without mentioning that I, the importance of demanding a total halt to arms sales to Peru. Also encourage your elected representatives to withdraw any support for the Boluarte regime. The roots of corruption in Peru run deep, tracing back to our independence era, and our people can't achieve liberation alone. So we need networks of allies standing firmly by our side. Together, let's work towards a new dawn of social justice, not only for Peru, but for the world. Thank you. Thank you so much, Francesca. Um, and our solidarity to um, the people of Peru whose resistance now has been going on for so long um, and remains at such a high level. It's remarkable and our solidarity from Britain, but also I'm sure from people internationally on this call too. And also, um, rest in peace, Hugo Blanco, who is someone who um, I remember reading books about and by him when I was first getting involved in the 90s and someone who's an international militant that many of us have respected for a long time and sad news there. Um, the struggle must continue. And also thank you everyone for your questions that are coming in. Please keep them coming. We've got two more speakers and then some questions. So there's still plenty of time to put them in. And also if you're joining us now, I see our numbers are creeping up. Please do also tell us where you're tuning in from. Um, also thank you to those who have donated to the cost of hosting today's call. Um, I know it can feel sometimes like we go on about it a lot, but the size of our festival this year and stuff does actually cost thousands of pounds, even though we are volunteer-only organisations, so every little donation does make a difference. I mentioned in my introduction that the big bosses and their companies organise internationally, and we have to, too. 
So it's great for next to have an ex speaker from the trade union movement and perspective of a global trade union body. Um, so it's a pleasure to introduce another great friend of the Rise Festival, which is Gabrielle Rodriguez, who is the Civil Aviation Secretary of the International Transport Workers Federation. Over to you, comrade. Well, good afternoon to all. Thank you for this opportunity to share again with you um, ideas and um, a possible future uh, that could be more fair to us, to the to the workers uh, of the world. I uh, I work for the ITF, the International Transport Workers Federation, and as uh, Matt said, I am originally from Argentina, originally an aviation worker, an aviation union leader in Argentina. And um, a few years uh, ago, I started uh, helping to coordinate the work at international level of uh, aviation unions. Um, but uh, my federation is for all transport workers. Uh, we uh, represent some 700 uh, trade unions in 152 countries. Uh, and those unions represent around 20 million transport workers uh, globally. So just to share with you uh, one of the areas we're we are working on that are related to the to the debate today. Matt always remembers when when he introduces me, he remembers the work that we did in in Venezuela to help uh, the the workers and the unions or the 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 unions who survived after the the whole of the years where the right wing policies were taking over uh, the political system in in Venezuela, the unions uh, with Chavez and with all the turmoil of those years and all the resistance had difficulties to get together. Then Maduro, as a former union leader, could help them bring come together and we help them to form a federation of transport uh, unions that could support the policies the pro-worker policies of the government and it's still very strong and growing and uh, strong in the new railways and 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 strong in bringing unity and fighting for the rights of the workers but that was some years ago and uh, the the reality is that we do this. Unfortunately, we have to help rebuild unions uh, all over the world. And in the region in particular, we, we've seen and we heard a lot about this pendulum of the governments or, or people going to the right and to the left. The problem is that the left-wing governments and uh, in the past, the, um, the military governments left the social network completely destroyed. And that social net network includes the unions, includes the organizations of the workers. Some of them can resist. Some of them uh, have been able to resist through the years, uh, but others were smashed. Uh, others were completely disappeared, killed. So rebuilding that mesh, rebuilding that uh, network uh, takes uh, a lot of years. And um, to help the unions, uh, part of our work is to help those workers or those small organizations to be stronger, to grow, and to be um, democratic, and to respond to the needs of, of the workers in this new environment, the new environment that usually uh, when the right-wing governments 
uh, leave power. Uh, they are new hopes and new opportunities. But that does not mean that the unions can start working from the day one to support those policies. And part of our work is to help them rebuild that. Uh, we, we've done it more recently in, uh, in uh, Brazil with uh, Bolsonaro. We help them resist and we help them rebuild themselves. In Argentina, we help them resist against Macri's policies against uh, workers and, and, and an attack against unions. Fortunately, it was only four years, and uh, those policies were so horrendous that uh, he couldn't be reelected. So the unions could resist and the unions could uh, support a way of recovering uh, their right to defend their unions, their organizations and their uh, workers. So um, we saw, we, we did it in Bolivia after the coup. Uh, we, we've been doing it through the years. And uh, more recently, we, and we are still working in uh, Mexico. Uh, we've been there thanks to the opportunity that the new administration from López Obrador is giving to the unions to democratize themselves. Uh, many unions were lost completely. Uh, lost to the hands of uh, lawyers or people taking advantage of the historic protection to the to the unions uh, in order to sell that protection to any corporation that could be able to pay a fee. And we've been doing this with the support of um, Jeremy Corbyn and his Peace and Justice uh, project. Jeremy has been has traveled even with us a couple of times helping us with his contacts in, um, in government and in several uh, ministries in order to ensure that we could help the unions get the proper support in order to democratize themselves. Democratize themselves for, for some groups of workers has been very, very tough because those uh, leaders have been abusing of the existing organizations of the existing protection of the law to to protect not the workers but protect the corporations protect the new companies particularly the new companies that were establishing in in mexico through the years uh, they had a cba a collective bargaining agreement before starting operation signed with a union Who's the leader? Nobody knows. Where is the union? Nobody knows. How they are elected? Elected. They're not elected or they've been elected some time ago. So a whole system that was built or that ended up being through the years, uh, not for the protection of the workers, but the protection for the of the interests of a few people that were making money out of them. So uh, López Obrador came with um, uh, new legislation uh, with um, the support of Congress that gave some time, some months, depending on several aspects, but uh, some time for the unions to recover their connection with the workers, to recover their legitimacy. For that, they had to have assemblies, they had to have systems to vote, they had the need to have a way of demonstrating to the Ministry of Labor uh, that they are uh, truly representative of the workers 
that they should be uh, representing. Uh, this is not easy. It's really tough. And it's been easier for the unions that had that never lost a democratic input. Uh, there are some in, in aviation, the pilot unions, the flight attendance unions, but in other sectors, it's not uh, being easy. But fortunately, there is a clear vision from uh, Lopez Obrador administration, from the government, in order to ensure that they give the proper support to the workers in order to recover their organizations. And, and of course, the support of uh, people that are interested in democratizing and in supporting the democratization of unions in, in Mexico, like uh, Jeremy, I see Jeremy there. Hello, Jeremy. So uh, thanks to these efforts, uh, these uh, unions are recovering their strength, are recovering their representation, and recovering the true link with the workers. This is essential to recover a proper democracy. Uh, this is essential for the workers to recover their organizations and fight for their rights. It's true that uh, they needed a government that truly reflected their core values and their interests, uh, but the defense of the, of the rights of the workers should be done by the workers themselves through their organizations. With the support of the government in terms of giving them space and, and protection in order to do their work. But in reality, it's the decision of the workers themselves through their organizations uh, that need to uh, confront the corporations, confront the employers, fight when necessary, and agree in the end for the benefit of the workers. So I wanted to bring this, uh, this uh, recent experience. Well, it's, we are still working. It's not, it's not only recent. We started recently thanks to the new legislation, but uh, it's ongoing work. And we, we are very hopeful that this is going to be recovering the network that is necessary for any democracy to bring workers uh, into uh, the day-by-day -day life of that democracy, to make it a real democracy like uh, the one that we are seeing that is being recovered uh, in Mexico, thanks to Lopez Obrador. So I don't know, Matt, very simple today. Uh, if there are questions, I will be, will be happy to respond. Thank you, Gabrielle. It's interesting to hear about the work the ITF is doing. Um, thank you everyone for tuning in. I see our numbers are still going up on social media and elsewhere. We've got over 400 people live with us now. Um, we're moving on to our final speaker now. And then I think for those speakers who can stay, we'll have one big round of questions because I can see so many of you putting in good comments in that Q&A box. So please keep on with that. Our, our next speaker is um, Jeremy Corbyn, long time campaigner for international justice, founder of the Peace and Justice Project, um, MP for Islington North for the last 40 years, and um, someone that from the Rise Festival point of view would like to thank for all the support he's given us as we approach our fifth birthday next week. Um, over to you, Jeremy. Matt, thank you very much. Can you hear me okay? I'm in SOAS at the moment. We've just been doing a book launch for a book about tennis and apartheid and the struggle that 
tennis players made in this country and were not recognised as uh, proper tennis players by the British authorities. And it's, uh, I knew some of the people involved in that struggle many years ago, but some struggles never cease and we ours don't doesn't cease either i'm really pleased we're having this call today i'm really pleased at the global nature of it and the fact that we're linking up trade union struggles with peace struggles environmental struggles and so much more all around the world and that is absolutely crucial to the way that we organize ourselves and and behave as you said um i'm representing the peace and justice project which we founded after the 2019 election as a political space for people um, to come to, whether they're in the Labour Party or in any other organisation, and we can promote various issues, crucially the five points that we've put forward concerning wages, concerning housing, concerning health services, concerning environmental sustainability and protection, and crucially global, global issues, starting with the treatment of refugees, but moving on to the more global issues of, um, of peace and uh, anti-war activities all around the world. The um, Peace and Justice Project is also affiliated to Progressive International, and we're holding a Congress in Brazil in August, which is the first physical Congress we will have held. And it's in Brazil for a reason, because we celebrate the election of President Lula uh, as being the returned as president of Brazil, but also the whole hopeful movement, the brilliant movement of the left across Latin America that's done so much to uh, give real hope to people, not just in Latin America, but all around the world as well. We are at the moment, obviously, faced with the situation of the war in Ukraine. I believe that Russia was wrong to invade Ukraine. And I believe that the loss of life is appalling and unnecessary, both of Ukrainian soldiers and civilians and Russian soldiers and increasingly now Russian civilians as well. There has to be a way out of this war. I do not believe there's going to be a military victory for anybody in this war. The longer it goes on, the more people that will be killed, the more people that will be driven into exile as refugees. And the more damage that's done to food supplies around the world, and um, the more the world will become divided as a result of it. And so it's interesting that the UN either didn't want to or wasn't able to bring about a ceasefire. And... Um, had very little effect on preventing the war taking place. It's interesting that it's the African Union and the Latin American leaders that have been far more proactive and far more positive in trying to bring this about. I think there are two reasons for that. One is that uh, neither continent, Latin America or Africa, is involved in the war in any way whatsoever. But both continents um, do trade extensively with with Russia and with Europe, and in the case of particularly North Africa, rely very heavily on both Ukraine and Russia for grain imports and food supplies. So it's interesting that um, a delegation of African leaders went to Kiev and went to St. Petersburg to see President Putin and put forward proposals on a way forward in this particular conflict. I say congratulations to them for making that effort. And you never know, it might be something that would begin to bear fruit alongside the demands made by, by the Pope. And also the role that China has played in this war, again, trying to bring about 
So you will be able to trying to bring about um, some kind of peace process there. But this, of course, underlines the differences that are now happening in the world. All of us on this call have grown up in the period of the Cold War. Then post-Cold War, the um, power of the United States to set the agenda, the power of the United States to go to war in Afghanistan, in Iraq and other places. And that sort of unipolar world is now under challenge from the economic power of China and the diplomatic power of the rest of the world as the process for hopefully bringing about peace in Ukraine is beginning to demonstrate. So I think it's quite important that we don't allow ourselves to be completely confused in all this by the role of the Western media, which um, seems to refuse to recognize that uh, we don't need in this world leadership by one particular economic power or continent or country. What we need is a process that recognizes the issues that are facing this world and attempts to bring about some kind of peace and security. Real security isn't the ability to kill each other. Real security is about jobs, as our comrades from the ITF and others have been pointing out, is about decent pay levels, is about health, is about education, is about environmental sustainability. Some of these things are very far away at the present time. The last thing I want to say is about the crisis around the world of refugees and the rise of racism in our society. All of last week, I was in Strasbourg at the Council of Europe, where I'm a, one of the British parliamentary delegation to the Council of Europe. And also I'm a member of the Migration Committee, which deals with the issues of illegal pushbacks and so on. And we met in the time of this terrible loss of life off the coast of Greece when at least 500 people appear to have perished in the ship that sank off the Greek coast while it was carrying people to Europe. All the Western governments were very quick to blame people traffickers and people smugglers and exploiters and so on. Yeah. Of course they're exploiters, of course they're people traffickers, of course what they're doing was appalling and wrong and they were only doing it to make a lot of money. But who created the market from which they could do all of that other than the immigration policies of Western Europe and other other parts of the world as well. Those people died because of the racism in policy making all across Europe. And uh, I was forced to challenge the remarks made by various uh, very right-wing members in the uh, debating chamber last week in, in Strasbourg and pointed out that Europe actually has a minority of the world's refugees trying to get into Europe. There are 70 million refugees around the world. Most of them are being hosted in countries that do not have the resources or the wherewithal to give them any kind of support to look after them. Rohingya in Bangladesh being one example of this. And so we do need to have a, an approach to refugees, which is about recognizing them firstly as human beings trying to survive in a difficult world. And secondly, people that want to make a contribution to our, our world as a whole. But instead we have the media, in the USA, in Europe, and probably in other countries as well, just screaming headlines about the danger, the threat, the invasion, and so on of refugees. Refugees are victims of wars, often those created by the very countries in which they're trying to gain asylum. And so 
the war in Afghanistan, 21 years of it, billions spent, tens of thousands of dead. And what's it left behind but the poorest, most food-starved country in the whole world as a result of all of that military expenditure. So what we do need is that call for peace and that call for hope around the world. There are many reasons to be hopeful. Those that have voted for a change in Latin America, those that have voted for a change in other parts of the world. But those changes are not achieved by politicians just being elected to office. They're changed by trade unions, they're changed by popular action, they're changed by community activities. It is about building that sense of movement about how we bring about real security in the world. The security being able to live safely, work, healthcare for your children and yourselves, and of course, opportunities for education for all. That's what real peace and real justice around the world is about. And the last thing I conclude with is this. Our information comes from media, often media controlled by very powerful global corporations. And that media has an agenda with it. And you find Facebook closing down when it's uncomfortable for certain governments around the world. You find all of the media platforms being denied to us. And then you find that real journalists who do tell the truth pay a terrible price. The numbers of journalists that are in prison around the world that have been murdered because of their work, real journalists trying to expose corruption and injustice. And then you look at the situation facing Julian Assange. Julian Assange now more than four years in Belmarsh prison in Britain, maximum security prison with truly horrible conditions in it and threatened with removal to the United States where he will be in prison for over 140 years, a death sentence against somebody whose only crime has been to expose to the world the truth about the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the truth about the undermining of democratic governments around the world, and the truth about the power of global corporations to destroy our environment. Together, we are very, very strong. Let's not allow ourselves to be minimized, marginalized, or defeated by the siren calls for those that only believe in economic injustice, inequality, and don't care about the environment that they are destroying at the same time. That's why we have these calls. That's why we have these meetings. But above all, it's about our actions in promoting real in this world. Matt, thank you very much. Thank you, Jeremy, and uh, a pleasure to have you with us and all our support and solidarity from Arise as, as ever. For those speakers that can stay on the call, we're now going to have some questions. Um, what I'm going to do is take people in the same order that you originally spoke, and I'm going to ask a number of questions now that have come in, and if each speaker just picks one or two that they feel interested in to answer, and also sums up for, say, about 30 seconds to a minute each, um, and that's how we'll do it, because I am keen to have some audience participation. So first of all, I've got two questions from Facebook. Um, one says, in the UK and elsewhere, it feels like there's mounting pressure to pick a side in a dangerous new Cold War between the US and China. What can we do to push a different view of foreign policy in the mainstream? A second one from Facebook. For many people, it can be hard to see. And I think this relates maybe to some of what Jared was talking about. For many people, it can be hard to see how protests on the streets can intervene into the international forums where elite decision making happens. How do social movements assert themselves not only against our governments, but in those institutions? 
Um, and then over to Zoom, a question from Ian, which I think is specific for Francesca, which says there were reports around the turn of the year that the regime in Peru had effectively lost control of state power in much of the Andes. Does Francesca think that's an accurate description and has the situation gone forward, back or stayed the same in the last six months? Um, a nice comment here from Steve, who says, thank you, Gerard from Morocco. Your talk was excellent. What is the best way to help? And some great anti-capitalist comments from our friend Kirsty Lowe as ever. Welcome, Kirsty. Um, and Kirsty also has a question which maybe relates to Walter and some of the other speakers, which is how do we make sure that we're much more singing on the same hymn sheet in the left is how she phrases it. How do we sort of amplify a joint message across different bits of the left and across borders? And I think I've got one more, but I can't find it. One more from, uh, again, from on Zoom is, um, no, two more. So one is, can we hold hope, and maybe this is relevant for the Brazilian comrade, can we hold hope that the USA is overstretching itself and trying to intervene in things in so many areas of the world, um, such as the Pacific, I know, Central South America, the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then a question on the far right and how they get away with it, which is the final question I'll read out for people to choose from, again on Zoom. And that says, surely the biggest factor in the rise of the far right is the terrible quality that the opposition at the neoliberal extreme centre insists on counterposing to them. Um, so that's quite a wide range of topics. Hopefully our speakers will find one thing they can comment on and we'll go through in the same order again. So if we go to Aline first. Thank you so much, Matt. Jeremy, it's so good to see you again in a much more hopeful environment here in Brazil. Uh, I would like to start with the, uh, with the comment about U.S. imperialism in Latin America. We know that this is something that has, well, a long, well-recorded history. U.S. has met, has been meddling uh, with the, um, Latin American affairs for as long as we can remember. But there is one thing that is happening right now that is really important, uh, is that we are once again trying to build consultation spaces, you know, a relationship with our neighbors that enable us to have independent um, forums of organization. A couple of weeks ago, here in Brazil, in Brasilia, President Lula hosted a meeting with all the 12 presidents from South America. This is something huge, historical. We haven't seen a meeting like this uh, in the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years. So this is a very hopeful sign that we are now um, in a new or rather trying again to restart this, um, this process of regional integration that hopefully will make us stronger. Because this is something that is really important when we look at um, at the integration in Americas, we always look at forums where the United States it has the final answer, has the final word. And now we are building spaces where we can work uh, as a whole, 
as a you know sovereign region to try to fight this back. And there's another trend that is really important with that is the internationalism of the people. So we see now different spaces where organizations, popular organizations can now meet uh, other than the historical ones, such as Porto de São Paulo, that is more related to the parties, uh, all the movimentos, movimentos that is more related to popular movements, but new, uh, new spaces, new concertation forums where all these amazing, you know, popular struggles can come together. I think this is a this is a, a very hopeful sign for us, something to keep an eye on. But also, we have to remind that U.S. imperialism will only be defeated when we go beyond our borders, when we move beyond this, and we struggle against imperialism as one. You know, as as our main, one of our main and most important enemies, our most important struggle right now, because it is exactly this imperialism that gives space to all these other um, very concerning trends that we see right now. As for the far right, I think this is um, this is something that we are seeing really in first hand here in Brazil. Although it is really important for us to regain um, the power through popular vote uh, to democratic means, to elections, this is not enough to uh, really overcome the trend of the far right. Uh, this is something that runs deeper in our societies and we see that they, even when they are not in let's say institutional power in the government they are still powerful enough to move all those different pieces that might lead to uh destabilization coup d'etats and so on so i think uh, having that in mind and having in mind that yes we have to create new forms of opposition new forms to uh, fight it back is something that is going to be paramount for us to really create a fair, equal, just democratic society. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, a very comprehensive answer in just two minutes. Uh, really brilliant. Thank you, Alina. Um, our next, next we go back to Walter. One remark on the far right. Uh, I think we here in Austria have uh, a little, however, uh, valuable experience that fighting the far right is possible and can succeed under the condition uh, that you have a credible political uh, offer uh, from the left, meaning politicians who uh, say what they do and do what they say. And um, I believe uh, that uh, this is, so to say, the essential point. The political point is we must be aware that we see, at least in uh, Europe, a very strong coalition uh, emerging between the far right and the conservative right. And this we must fight 
with all means and by creating alliances, which even go uh, beyond the traditional uh, family of the left and um, even the, 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 the liberal forces. But third, and this I think uh, is important to understand that the fight against uh, the far right also has a cultural and I would say um, psychological uh, dimension. The mindsets of the people uh, in our societies to a large extent are colonialized meaning uh, people are uh, used uh, to have cheap clothes, cheap food, which are imported uh, through uh, scandalous uh, trade treaties between countries of the global south and the privileged countries. And we must change this. We must uh, explain to people that Europe has to redefine its role in the world and Partially, uh, this also pop up, pops up in the, uh, in the issue of migration, because people feel in Europe that something is on the way to change, and that will affect our societies. And I believe our societies must embrace these changes. They must understand not only that they are necessary, but that would be a fairer world, it would be a more just world, and it would be also a more democratic and a more social world. And uh, my second uh, remark refers uh, to the transnational transnationalization of politics. Indeed, this is a global fight. This is a European fight. The party which I represent is a party which unites 35 parties, left-leaning parties uh, in uh, Europe uh, from 25 countries. Uh, it is the biggest part uh, of the political left in Europe, but it's not uh, the complete uh, left in Europe. And we need to develop dialogue and the capacity of uniting on a more broader level. And we need also to unite with the forces uh, in the global south. I'm heading tomorrow for Brazil for participating in the Sao Paulo Forum and then uh, participating uh, in a seminar uh, organized by the Sao Paulo Forum and the European Left Party on shared uh, visions. And I believe this is the way uh, we have to develop ourselves because we can learn from one another and we can find out ways how to converge in practical terms. And last, uh, not least, uh, Again, in, in Brazil, we meet again for the meeting of the uh, Progressive International. And I think these are signs of hope. They must be strengthened. They must be more systematically developed also to the field of media cooperation and intellectual cooperation, uh, because um, the fight in Europe and worldwide is far from being lost. It, much depends on our capacity uh, to develop uh, unity and to develop solidarity between the diverse forces which are uh, um, represented uh, in the social movements and in the political left. Thank you, Walton. It's been great to make that connection with you from Arise, and um, we hope to stay in touch and do more together. Um, straight on to Jared now in Morocco. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, and, and again, I'm really happy to be to be part of this panel and see how people are struggling in many places of the world. I mean, in Peru, in Brazil, in Morocco, in Europe, this is for me really is a source of hope, like to avoid this, uh, the apocalyptic capitalist plan that, that we have now. I mean, that leading the world to the, to more barbarism. So it's really, really important to, again, to learn from each other and to try to globalize resistance against this globalized uh, 
catastrophic capitalist system that is ruling the world today. Okay, so I will start with the with the question: uh, what what is the best way for European cameras, I like to help or European people to help the struggles that we have, our people are leading in in our countries. I w- I would say just push or make pressure on your on your government to not to interfere in our countries. This is, for me is the only uh, demand that I, I can make. Each time the European Europeans or Western countries interfere in our countries is a mess. And and we have seen it in uh, in Afghanistan and Jeremy talked about how was bad in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in many countries, and how when uh, Julian Assange tried like just to show how bad it was, now he is persecuted exactly like my comrades Omar Radi, who is now in the jail because he tried to do his work as a journalist and show how the local elite taking benefit of their power to 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 get wealthy and to yeah to amass uh, so so this is for the the first question so i would say like just make pressure on your governments to stop interfering our 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 country and stop this myth that they will free and and find solution for the world no i mean we are not relying on europeans to solve our problems our people are able to solve their own problem their own problems. We are relying more to the most oppressed people who are able to free themselves and free us all. So this is our really uh, deep conviction. For the second question, I'm I'm not sure that I I understood, Matt. So it was like, why if the protests that are going on are against the institutions or or against um, the the regime, the local elite? Is is that the question? I think the question was more... um... The international institutions, I guess, such as World Bank or the UN, seem so remote that how can you get people to motivate to take protests into bodies of that that seem so far away from them, I suppose? Okay, but yeah, but yeah, let's let's say that like a concrete, and maybe it's also linked to this question, but a concrete way to support us is to participate to our coming um, counter summit in Marrakesh in next October. Um, so n- n- next October from the 9th to the to the 5th to the 16th of October, World Bank and IMF decided to help uh, to hold their annual meeting in Morocco for the second time in Africa. So the first time was in Kenya. 50 years ago, and now they decided to do it in, in Morocco. So social movement, grassroots movements in Morocco and in, in middle, in MENA region, in Africa, they are, we are already organizing to make it known that those two institutions were responsible for the destruction of many ecosystems by promoting extractivist policies in our, our countries. They were they are responsible for the suffering and the dying of our people. So they are not will come. We don't want them to come. So we want to make it known. And this is why we are organizing a counter summit in Marrakesh from the 12th to the 15th. And we and here I'm 
I'm like making a, an uh, an uh, an official invitation to Jeremy, but to all you guys, like to come because it's very important. The participant of comrades from other countries will will be a, a huge support for us to make it happen because we are also suffering from a lot of repression and harassment. So we are really right. So when I when I met in Marrakesh, of course to again to learn from each other to discuss and to try to understand the world where we are living today, but also to discuss alternatives. Because I think we do have alternatives, because I think one of the main criticisms that we had, like as anti-globalization movement, like, like we are just criticized, we don't have alternatives. It is not true. Let me just give one, one example for the debt, because I was like, I prepared like myself for debt. So then <laughs> let me just give one example. In, uh, in our network, the CRDTM, for the abolition of the, the debt, what we are asking for is actually as a repudiation of the debt, which means like a sovereign decision from the global south countries to repudiate, to cancel this debt because it's illegitimate. I showed how like the, the origin, the, the original sin actually in my country, it was the colonial debt that we, 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 we are paying. And most of the debt never served our, our people. So we asked for this, the, the, the repudiation. And the tool for that, that we are proposing is a citizen audit of the debt. And when we are talking about citizen audit, it means like how to get people involved in this process to, to open the books and try to answer basic questions. Who decide to take those debts? Who spend them? Uh, which interests, who took benefit of those, those, the, those debt. And in most of the time, and we were involved in Greece and in, uh, in Ecuador and in many countries, and we showed how uh, those debts actually are, are, uh, are, are illegitimate and should be cancelled and should be re re repudiated. But the involvement of people, and this is why we are talking about citizen audit, it's very important because, again, we cannot, we are relying more on the people on below and the struggles of the people rather than any uh, begging people from the north to cancel this debt. This is not for us, this debt is illegitimate. We should stop it because if we uh, stop paying the debt, as, as Sankara said, if we stop paying the debt, the, the lenders will not die. But if we continue to pay this debt, we will die. We will die, and people, our people, are bleeding to death because we are paying. Because most of the time, you will find that this debt is absorbing in my country, for example, more than the third of the budget. And I will stop here. Thank you. Thank you, Jad. Sorry, I'm just aware that some of our speakers need to leave soon, so I'm just keen to get them all in for a quick response. And uh, next, Francesca. Yeah, so I want to uh, mention, uh, thank you for the question, uh, for a brief period of time, it, is, it was true that uh, the Boluarte regime in Peru lost control over the population of Juliaca in Puno, which is located in the Peruvian Andes. In this region, for you to know, the government committed a massacre, killing 18 people in a single day in January, this January. Unfortunately, the resistance and fight against the government in Juliaca, where the massacre took place, was met with 
severe repression, brutal repression. The government deployed the military and imposed continuous state of emergency for six months. Uh, the population of this region has been under a state of emergency with all their rights suspended. Uh, but what brings some hope uh, right now is that um, both the government and Congress are deeply despised by the people in Peru. Uh, people even from, from like middle class, not only uh, working class people and indigenous people, 80% of the population rejects the government and 90% of the population uh, rejects the Congress of Peru. So wherever these officials go, the president, congressmen, they are met with protests and active rejection. This widespread discontent forces them to limit their public appearances and confines themselves to the capital city. I don't know who can continue uh, running a country in this situation. So the struggle for democracy in Peru remains ongoing. And despite the current uncertainty about the future, the widespread rejection of the far-right authorities by millions of people is not going anywhere. Thank you, Francesca, and thank you for joining us so often this year to update us on what's happening in Peru. We really appreciate the work you're doing. Uh, Gabriel? Thank you, Matt. I think I have a question about the lawfare in Argentina and how the left is reacting. Well, the lawfare, you, you, most of you know very well. Um, it's, it's an old term, but it got very popular in Brazil in 2014 when an invented case against Lula forced him out of the election, avoided him to be a candidate. Uh, there were no proof. Uh, the case was dismissed later on. It was proved, it was very clear that it was all an invention. But what's important is that there was a very clear triangle. Uh, it was uh, the right wing, Bolsonaro at that time, who was interested because he wanted, if, if Lula couldn't be a candidate, it was much easier for him to win and he won. The judiciary that has to take these cases, even if they don't have proof, uh, they have to take them seriously. Then years after they can dismiss it or it can get to another level in the judiciary that says there's no proof and they, it's just lost. But in the beginning, there needs to be an initiation of the process, even without the proof. And then the third part of, of this association is the press. The press gives uh, legitimacy to the case and, of course, made it very visible so that it makes a political issue out of the uh, supposed corruption case that should be dealt by the judiciary only. It was very clear in 2014 in Brazil. It was very clear in 2016 in, in Argentina in a case against uh, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. Uh, and the question is, how is uh, the law for in Argentina? I would say it's alive and kicking. Uh, it's uh, still a tool uh, very well used, very oiled by uh, these three actors and are trying again to seize power uh, by using it. Um, uh, we should say that on top of the law for against Cristina Fernandez, there was an attempt to kill her, a clear attempt to kill her. Um, but the judiciary is not moving forward in the 
investigation on who, who are the real perpetrators, um, the ones behind the, the, the ones that are in jail, that are the ones that did it for some pennies. Um, so um, fortunately, uh, in, there are elections by the end of the year, and fortunately there is some hope of, of the unity of the progressive movements, the left, uh, and uh, the ones that uh, want to confront the right um, in the Peronism and uh, in, in some other sectors. So there is hope that there is going to be resistance, but the resistance against the lawfare and how to eradicate it, it's going to take, I would say, decades. Um, there is a process against the judiciary, there is a process in Congress, but if you don't have majority in Congress, you cannot confront the judiciary. Because, of course, we usually respect the law and respect the process. The right wing then comes and govern by decree. They don't care. But we have to do everything by the rule and, and take special care. So deposing um, a judiciary system, uh, a Supreme Court uh, that is part of this system and part of this locker is going to take several years. Uh, what is clear is that there is a majority in Congress that is needed, and we we hope the unions hope that it's going to be achieved uh, somehow or closer to be achieved somehow in this next election in in October this year. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Gabrielle. I'm sorry for rushing everyone. Um, it's been a brilliant discussion with over 400 people joining us, and as this festival has gone on, we've had a lot more people watching back our sessions, especially on YouTube. So. Please do keep spreading the word. Um, before I final sum up from Jeremy, I'd like to quickly thank everyone again. Please do donate to Rise if you can, and even consider becoming a friend of Rise to help us expand our work. Uh, we must keep working together to put forward socialist ideas, and a key part of that is our internationalism, as we've heard today, and standing in solidarity with those progressive forces globally that we have so much in common with common with, as we've heard from today. Uh, final thing for me, please note that the next evening Arise event is our closing rally this Wednesday, and we're really pleased this year for the first time that that will be joined with the Socialist Future comrades from Young Labour and Labour students who are doing a great uh, great job of keeping the red flag flying there. So um, we'll be hearing also from a lot of the strikes currently going on, so please do be there on Wednesday. Uh, over to you, Jeremy, to close the event. Matt, thank you very much. And thank you to everyone who's been on the call and spoken today, because I think it's been really valuable and very interesting. And I just want to make three very quick points, if I could, because we need to finish. One, total solidarity with the people of Peru about what they're going through at the present time. Their president should not be in prison. The elections should be restored and elected government should be in place in Peru. And well done all the other Latin American governments that have spoken out in solidarity with the people of Peru. Because the movement that elected uh, President Lula, that elected the new president in Colombia and has done so much across Latin America has got to continue and grow further and further to end injustice, poverty and inequality all across the continent. Because that fundamentally is what it is all about. Second point, I absolutely agree with the points just made by Walter Bayer about the rise of the far right 
not just in Europe, but also across the world. There is a significant far right in Brazil, there's significant far right in many countries in the world. And uh, last week I was in the Council of Europe in Strasbourg and I was listening to the speeches made by many of the far right there. It is terrifying, it is frightening. Their whole narrative is essentially demonizing refugees as the new new scapegoat for all the economic ills and they have an appeal to voters who feel completely disenfranchised so if the left doesn't offer an alternative an alternative which is about increasing wages at least to keep pace with inflation if the left doesn't have an alternative which is about maintaining decent levels of public service and public ownership in the case of Britain, of male rail, water and energy, but there are other candidates as well for that, then the left will lose out because the left will not be offering a proper alternative. That's why we've had the five demands from the Peace and Justice Project, which are on our website, and you're obviously all very, very welcome to look at them. And I'm sure that they were something that you would support because they meet with the basic demands of anyone remotely on the left anywhere in the world. That's the whole point behind them. The third point I make is this. The um, broadsheet newspapers and the sort of weekend columnists talk endlessly about culture wars, usually in a sort of disparaging way and so on. I want to approach them from a different point of view. Sometimes our appeal is um, based on the numbers of meetings we do and often quite small events that we do. But it's also about the cultural lives of people. The idea of a more just and better and socialist future isn't just going to be achieved by our ability at speaking to at meetings. It's also about music, about imagination and about art. And it's inspiring people, particularly young people, that being a member of a trade union, being a member of a political movement doesn't mean you leave behind all the brilliance of art, of music, of imagination, of poetry and culture, it is about doing many other things as well. And so I just think we should always think in terms of the cultural values of what we're saying and what we're doing and the understanding of the history of struggle that has brought about fundamental changes. As I said uh, uh, earlier, I've just been speaking at a meeting, um, launching a book, about one aspect of the struggle against apartheid. There are many other such events going on around the world, but the fundamental understanding of history is what's so absolutely crucial to everything that we do. These calls, these global calls that we're making are key to our understanding the struggles that are going on in each other's countries, but recognizing if you're an Uber delivery rider, in London, in Bogota, in Buenos Aires, in New Delhi, or in Sydney, Australia, or in New York. You're basically working for yet another platform company that doesn't care about you, doesn't give you any rights, doesn't give you any protection, doesn't give you any safety, and you are a victim of a form of global capitalism that will exploit you to the ends of the earth. The only antidote to that 
is international trade unionism. That's why I was so pleased that the International Transport Federation were included in this call and the incredible work that they're doing in improving unionization, not just in Latin America, but in many other parts of the world. And Laura Alvarez, who does a great deal of the international work for the Peace and Justice Project, sends her greetings to this event as well. Because when we speak together, we're stronger, we're better informed. And that's how we go forward to build that world of peace and justice. Thank you, Jeremy. And thank you, everyone, for a really great discussion. We'll be in touch again. And thank you. See you on Wednesday.